All right. We are not in Luke today. Got something different for you. We are in Acts chapter 14. Acts records the history of the early church. Leading up to Christmas Day when we celebrate the coming, the first coming of, our, of the Lord and ultimately that he came to die for our sins on the cross. I want to return to some of these core beliefs and practices that we hold as a local body of believers. <clears throat> as a church with Christ as our head, we are given mandates. There are certain things that as a church we must do to be called a church, to be a church. Otherwise, we are, we are less than that. Certain mandates. We have an ultimate purpose. For the most part, cr cross-denominationally, across times and cultures, we all relatively agree that the church has a mandate. That is not the issue. In history, the issues most often arose on how about to how to go about doing these things taking theology and applying it practically seems to be the step a literal step that we trip over most often a literal step in a metaphorical sense if that makes sense <clears throat> what does making disciple what was that me sorry Hello? Are we on? Whoa. Okay, it's this. Sorry about that. <clears throat> what does making disciples look like? Don't get me wrong. The differences are not superficial. It's not a, just about differing preferences or differences um, on whether we sit in rows or in pews or whatever. <clears throat> No, pragmatic differences can stem from core theological understanding. Take example, the Reformation. The Reformation came about because of an issue of church leadership, right? The Pope. So, pragmatic differences can stem from core theological uh, issues, okay? Today, I want us to look back and consider our missionaries, or rather, the missionaries that we support. Someone gets trained up by a church and commissioned and sent out to plant another church somewhere else. That's how we do it. They spend several years there until the church, however big or small, is self-sustainable. Then they return to their supporting church during this process, uh, give feedback and report, and then go out and do it again somewhere else. Is this the ultimate blueprint for church planting? Why not have another blueprint? <clears throat> Why not do it another practical way? And this is a debate. The Methodists or the Anglicans, for example, their um, method of church growth uh, or 
any traditional re reform, the Dutch reformed, they're more um, they're more coordinated, right? It's it's one church per town. There's no overlap, and they can coordinate this because there's a central organizing body, not a church that uh, manages the churches, and they appoint a pastor there, and the church is there, and if that pastor passes away or retires, it's fine, the church is still there, we'll just appoint another pastor. <clears throat> well, what's the problem, in my opinion? A problem stems from the fact that the church becomes a building and not the people. What about um, church campuses? Uh, in the last 20 years, um, there is this uh, new movement to establish uh, satellite churches off of a main church. So a seasoned elder of a large established church would go um, a city or two further on and plant another church there. <clears throat> in a lot of ways, it looks like an autonomous uh, church plant, um, usually very small, starting in school halls or something like that. But their philosophy is about sharing, sharing identity, sharing leadership, sharing resources, not um, establishing a church and then having it be self-sustainable. <clears throat> Practically, unfortunately, um, it's, it, does less, it becomes less about sharing, right, and more about what's the problem, what's the underlining, possibly, this is, this is uh, what I've knows. The Bible doesn't say anything about this. We're going to talk about practical, uh, how we approach missions, how we approach growing the church. <clears throat> the problem with this method is that one church is the main church, and that church is the secondary church. This church is the important church, and that church is the least uh, is not as important. And everyone looks to this church for ultimate guidance and ultimate wisdom, and the pastor of this church. <clears throat> so there's issues. There's pros to that. There's also cons to that, right? There's pros to having a one. Uh, place to organize and this you can you can make sure that you know everything gets touched on there's pros to that but there's also disadvantages the way we do missions at this church have you ever thought about it what are the pros what are the cons and where do we even get it from i should have preached this message last week right <clears throat> Let's imagine a table, okay? An illustration of a table where the pole in the ground is the system, the pragmatics, okay? And the surface is the effectiveness of that church in performing what it's supposed to do. Now, some churches, there's one pole and there's several tables on top of the one pole, like the campus church. There's the other church where there's 50 poles 
but only one small table? <laughs> how, can we, how can we get to the ideal? Is there even an ideal where one pole holds up one table and another pole holds up another table? Wouldn't that be great? I don't know if such a thing exists. What I do know is that there's example in scripture of how they did it. And through that example, we have modeled how we do it today as independent Baptists. And I want to share with you today that reasoning. And my hope is that if we understand what we're doing, that we can be more involved in doing it emotionally, prayerfully, intellectually, in our giving, and in every way that we can as a church support our missions more actively. So let's look at it. Chapter 14 of Acts. Chapter 14 of Acts. I'm actually reading from... Um, let me see here. Um, my, sorry. From verse 21. Okay. From verse 21. Let's read it and pray and then look at what we can learn. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... They returned to Lystria and to Iconium and to Antioch, another Antioch, not the one where Paul is from, <clears throat> strengthening the minds of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, to go through many afflictions and thus enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Amphilia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. So if you look on a map, you can clearly trace this uh, very distinctly. It's very detailed, their route. <clears throat> from there, they sailed to Antioch, the first Antioch where Paul was sent from, where they had been commended to grace, to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. When they had arrived and had assembled the church, they reported what God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. There they stayed a long time with the disciples. Dear Lord, I pray that, as with everything, we may take our ultimate authority and guidance for all things pragmatic and philosophical from your word as the foundation. I pray that we can learn from this and temper our own misconceptions and expectations of what it means to share the gospel and in all other things where we might be in error, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm not saying we're doing it perfectly. I'm saying we're getting this model from the Bible, and I want to explain to you today 
How? So the missionaries journey. <clears throat> they preached the gospel. They faced opposition. They led people to Christ. They grew a nucleus of believers. They established leadership. And they reported back to their home church. <clears throat> Preaching the gospel, it says, uh, at Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and so spoke um, that a great crowd of Jews and Greeks believed. That's the verse right before. Um, uh, uh, sorry, in the first verse of this chapter. So that's the bit of the context there. They preached the gospel. And in verse 21 again, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, then they, then they returned. <clears throat> so the first thing is, we preach the gospel. Missionary would be sent out, and he would be called to somewhere, a city or a town or a country, and he would preach the gospel. Not buy land and put up a sign and um, get name tags made. <laughs> he would preach the gospel. Many uh, of our missionaries right now are doing Bible studies in homes, are still to, in, in the year 2021 going door to door <clears throat> in the communities that they're able to, <clears throat> meeting in every place that they can to share the gospel. In the first century, they did not have buildings like we did today. The the very definition of what a church is was fundamentally different in their minds. It was a people. It was the people. It was not a building or a name or a brand or anything like that because they didn't have any of that. They had each other. <clears throat> so they go out and they preach the gospel. First and foremost, where else would you be able to start, honestly? They faced opposition. In verse 2 of this chapter, a bit of context, it says, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and embittered their minds against the brothers. They faced opposition. It's not an, it's not an easy calling. <laughs> story after story after story of discouragement of... of um, Insults of, of people almost spitting in your face. And you're trying to save them. You're trying to sh share the way for them to be saved. Sorry. <coughs> Discouragement, not just in persecuted countries, but, uh, but here on our very doorstep. It's, uh, opposition is the norm, even. Jesus spoke about it in, in John chapter 16. <coughs> where he sets that as a standard. Don't go out and preach the gospel, and then when you get shot down, think, oh, I did something wrong, or I'm not cut out for this, or uh, I'm not doing that again. Actually, you should be happy, because that is the default that we should expect when we share the gospel. We should expect opposition. When the Lord uses 
what we say and what we share to convict the people, that's wonderful. That's, that's the purpose. That's the aim. But that's not the expectation. The expectation can be different than the purpose. Don't be discouraged. And our missionaries have faced many, many, many reasons to be discouraged, but have not. I wonder when we go out and we train people to go and plant churches and we measure their success on how many people are sitting in, in the pews on a Sunday, that we are doing those poor men or, or a disservice. When this church says, go and start a campus church there, and because you have our brand and our identity and our resources, we'll judge your success on the people sitting in the audience, not the people being baptized, not the people um, that have professed faith in Christ, not the people you've reached for the gospel, the people that are sitting in the audience. And I'm not making this up. I've heard this firsthand. How do we judge success? It says leading people to Christ is the next one. So preaching the gospel and actually bringing people to Christ is not entirely mutual. You can preach the gospel to many people who would reject you. But some would not. Some would accept. They would be then led to Christ. Listen to verse 21. It says, when they had preached the gospel in the city, they had made many disciples. Disciples means followers. You are now a believer. <laughs> in the early church, when people were saved and baptized, it says they were added to the church. Now, in a very literal sense, it, it kind of implied that somebody went around with a pen and a paper and wrote down their names. They knew who, who was, they knew who were with them. <laughs> They, they formed a community. And so a missionary's job <clears throat> must be to preach the gospel, but then those who are recept receptive, let's come together. <laughs> let's start what's beginning to look like a church. <clears throat> we make a big deal about revival crusades and going in, doing missions trips and things for a week or two weeks, and not discrediting that. I think those, are, those have their place, right? But to actually go and, and preach the gospel in any meaningful sense to a community, there, there must be a long-term commitment to the people you're ministering to. Missionary heroes and pioneers that we read about in biographies dedicate their lives to a country or a region. If that's what's necessary, that is what it means to be a missionary. <laughs> Paul went on three missionary trips in his lifetime, over a span of about, I th don't quote me, 40 or 50 years, okay? Many of these trips took upwards of 10 years for one trip. He dedicated his life <laughs> to the work of missions. That's, that's why we look to him and we say, can we learn something about the way that he did it? Acts 
is not a prescriptive book. It doesn't tell us what we should do. It's descriptive. It tells us how they did it. And we take what we can. We ask ourselves, is this cultural? Is this um, um, period-based? Uh, are we able to um, apply what they did here? And you can see a lot of it transfers very well, and a lot of it is very relevant, I believe. Next, they grew a nucleus of believers. Verse 22, it says, strengthening the minds of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, to go through many afflictions and thus enter the kingdom of God. <clears throat> they, they, they grew a nucleus of believers. Salvation is just the beginning. Then we walk a road with the Lord. We follow him, literally, disciples. That is built into the Great Commission. Make disciples, teaching them all that I have commanded you. That's part of the Great Commission. Not just, and here's Jesus. I hope it works out. When we um, still had <laughs> an established local evangelism ministry, I was adamant that these ministries included a long-term uh, focused um, input into a specific community. That was how I believed we should model uh, local evangelism. So Mandre <coughs> and Pastor Stembisa before that preached every month at Amachun for 10 years. I want to get back to that. It doesn't have to be there again necessarily. But there's so many opportunities where we can direct evangelism efforts to a specific community. And that's what our missionaries do. <clears throat> they go into a very specific region, a small town, uh, somewhere very specific. And they grow a nucleus of believers. Brother Mike Nielsen, he does prison ministry. You think, why do we support him as a missionary? Well, because he does all of this. He has been working in the prisons of Johannesburg for upwards of, I don't know, 20 years now. And he grows a nucleus of believers. He goes in, he shares the gospel. He faces a lot of opposition. He leads people to Christ there. He grows a nucleus of believers. They do a discipleship course. He, he sees the same people week after week after week, and he works through discipleship material with them. Even out of his entire ministry in the prisons, only one person has come out and gone into full-time ministry. But that's one person <laughs> from a prison. So is he a missionary in the biblical sense? Yes. I want us to challenge our misconceptions, what it means to be a missionary and why we support the missions that we do, what it is to grow a church. <clears throat> Next, they establish leadership. 
before moving on. They do move on. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, elders, um, it's the same word as, as pastor or bishop, um, leadership. When they had appointed elders in every church, in other words, pastors in every church, um, it says they commended them to the grace of God. <coughs> you have learned from me. You are now able to lead this church, and the church is able to edify itself and spread the gospel further. <coughs> you are self-sustaining, and the missionary leaves. That's what needs to happen. That's, that's what we do. As soon as there's leadership, the missionary leaves. And that's a good thing. And then it says they report back. From there, they sail back to Antioch where they... Um, assembled the church, and they reported to them of what God had done <laughs> through them. <clears throat> that's why we have a missions conference, and that's why we have uh, missionary letters up there, because we want to hear what they're doing. We are so grateful for modern technology and Facebook and email. Imagine having to wait three or four years to hear if a missionary was even alive. I bet that reunion was a joyous occasion. <clears throat> but we're grateful that we can hear back from them. So how can we be a part of a work like this? How can we be more part of our missions? Through giving, through prayer and fellowship, and through our own evangelism efforts. I'm quickly going to go through it. <clears throat> Just a note here. Um, through giving, it, it does come up, okay? People need to live, they need to sleep, they need to eat. How does the Bible say they did that? <laughs> if they were away for years and years preaching the gospel, how did they get money to eat? Where did they sleep? How did they survive? That's a great, great question. We see several different ways. Paul, in one instance, not throughout his entire ministry, uh, it talks about him, um, we call it tent making now. Uh, famously, if a pastor has another part-time job, okay, that's not entirely unbiblical. If the church is not able to support the work of that missionary or uh, or pastor, it's okay for them to work. Paul did it. He, he did some part-time work. Okay, not throughout his ministry, just for that um, where there was a need, and he was able to. Other examples, they would go out in two or three. Paul never went alone. Okay, and then it says, while he dedicated himself to full-time ministry, the two others that he went with found jobs, and they worked to support the three of them. They were a missionary team, but 
that one or those two would work normal jobs and Paul would dedicate all of his time to preaching and praying and counseling and, and, and bringing people to Christ and discipleship. And, and that was a, a strategy, okay? That's fair. That's <clears throat> Another one, and we see it here in Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to read a couple of verses from Philippians chapter 4 where Paul thanks a church, a church that he's not associated with for providing for his physical needs. And there's a few things we can note from this, that they have done so several times before, <clears throat> that they did so out of their own goodwill and not because Paul came begging at their door. They heard about it through the grapevine, and they, and they gave out of themselves. And the response that Paul gives to them. <clears throat> so verse 14, nevertheless, you did well having shared in my affliction. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving or receiving except you alone. Even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessity. Not because I desired a gift, but I desire the fruit accumulated to your account. The Lord is keeping track of what we do, and he sees the works that we do for missions as a church. It says, Paul um, says as much there. He says, the fact that you considered my physical needs, this is what he says. Um, it's like a sweet fragrance, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to the Lord. <clears throat> now in the temple, they not only sacrificed lambs and calves and goats, they sacrificed um, uh, a type of rice. <laughs> when they burnt it, it made a sweet-smelling fragrance. Rice. And Paul says, you're giving, you're helping of my physical needs while I dedicate myself to ministry is like it's acceptable to the Lord as if it were a sacrifice in the temple. So he's saying, I appreciate what you're doing for me, but know that what you were giving of yourself, you are not only giving to me <laughs> because I'm dedicating myself to ministry, you're giving it to the Lord, like a sacrifice. The temple priests were the only ones in the entire nation of Israel, um, if he's now comparing it, who were full-time, that's their job, to do the priestly work. All the other tribes had land. The tribe of Levi did not have any land. They were responsible for the temple. And their 
giving or their livelihood came from the giving of the nation. <laughs> so when there was food donated to the temple, that's what the priest used to live off. And Paul is saying, like that, we have a responsibility to the people that minister the gospel full time. Where it doesn't say exactly how, it doesn't give us a structure or a blueprint. It just says that there is a place for us to give. So in this church, we have made uh, a place for that, our missions giving. Everything that is put into that account uh, goes towards missions. Unfortunately, I'm going to be having a few difficult conversations next year. We're, we're a lot smaller, and we're going to have a hard time. We, not next year, next week. And I realize that. I know that. And I'm not expecting us to give what we used to give. But I want to know that we can give everything that we're able to. I know, uh, I know where we are now, and that's fine. But I want us to know, I want, I want to know in my heart that this church is giving what we're able to give. That's the key word here. And our prayer and our fellowship if we pray for them, if we are involved in their lives, their contact numbers are on those cards. If you take one and you phone them and you WhatsApp them and you introduce yourself, I'm so-and-so from Faith Baptist Church, and I want you to know that I read your, your latest prayer letter, and I'm praying for this specific thing you asked prayer for. And you connect with them, and you actually do pray for them, and we actually do read their letters that they post us. It matters. It matters that we know. It matters that we care. It matters that we're involved. We can't just say vaguely, I'm praying for the missionaries. Not only in prayer, but in fellowship as well. It says that they spent time with the disciples when they returned for a long time. We don't have that luxury, but we are able to communicate with them nonetheless. And through our own evangelism efforts here, here in our community, let their work and their dedication and their sacrifices inspire us to do what we are able to do here for the gospel. <clears throat> to share the gospel here, to hand out a tract. We have a mountain of tracts that we can, we can distribute a tract to almost... I don't know, there's thousands. There's thousands of tracks down there. We can do something here for the gospel. The thing is, how do we know that we've set out to achieve, we've reached what we've set out to achieve? It says in the passage that it says, when they had achieved what they had set out to do, they returned. How do they know that? How do we know when the work is done, when we can go home? 
That's an interesting question, and it's something really at the center of the missionary debate. How do we do missions? People debating mission strategies uh, know we must stay close by. It's counterproductive to send missionaries over there, and they send some over here, and we should just stay in our communities, and, and they should stay in theirs, and it'll save us a lot of time. <clears throat> Others disagree. They uh, go the other way. <laughs> they say, no, um, the unreached people groups that we spoke about in the evangelism conference, there are thousands of unreached people groups. We need to focus on them <laughs> and not send any missionaries whatsoever to people groups that have already been reached by the gospel, okay? <clears throat> Fair points on both sides. Where do we land? There's missions organizations that found their entire principle of missions on the idea of saturation, okay? Now, here's a little bit of a chemistry lesson, okay? They say saturation, but what happens in practice is that it becomes, it becomes a goal of homeostasis. It becomes a goal of equilibrium. Here's the difference. Saturation is when you have, let's say, some water, and you add something else to that water, and you add and you add, and as it gets mixed, it becomes mixed in with the water, and you add and you add and you add and you add and you add, and you add until those two liquids cannot mix anymore. You cannot dilute that substance anymore. It's so concentrated, it's so thick, it's so focused, that it just can't dissolve, it can't mix anymore. I agree. That's what we need to do. And that's hopefully what we're doing. When a missionary goes into a community and preaches and preaches and preaches and preaches and preaches and spends years growing a church and evangelizing and teaching them to, to evangelize others, and they saturate that pinprick with the gospel. <clears throat> what we see people trying to achieve is not that. <clears throat> people try and spread the gospel as, as widely and as broadly as possible. We should do that, yes. But they... They, they see how far they can leap. And what happens is they put one drop here, 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 one drop, one drop, one drop. In all these hundreds of different glasses of water, they put a little drop, and they say, saturation has been achieved. <laughs> when that little bit just gets dissolved and you can barely even see it, mixed in with the water. I'm not discrediting the work that these missions organizations are doing. I think any attempt at sharing the gospel is good. But it sometimes feels like, are we doing enough? <laughs> why aren't we, why don't we have missionaries in other continents? Why has Mike been preaching at this one prison for the last 20 years. Why doesn't he go to other prisons? Why has um, 
uh, why are there so many churches uh, in the Western Cape? Why, what about other provinces? <coughs> Those are fair points, but I want us to rethink how we do missions. Not that we've been doing it differently. <laughs> I think we've been doing it a good way, the way we've been, always been doing it for years. I want us to get behind that. I want us to see the value in the way we do things. And I want us, as a church, to come together and propel that. Hopefully, I've made us think a little bit. So this week, you're going to read a letter you're going to pray for a missionary, and you're going to share a gospel tract with someone. And we'll do it together as a church. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the wonderful privilege and honor that we, that you have instituted that the gospel be shared through human language, through words, that you use ordinary men and women like ourselves to propagate the message of the gospel. And we thank you for that. I pray that we may embrace that, not be fearful, but see it for the wonderful privilege and honor it is by which we have been saved, secured to eternal salvation through Jesus Christ, those words we can give to someone else. We pray for those who dedicate their lives to it, the missionaries that we support, that you have called to be full-time. Even though we all evangelize, that these families and individuals be strengthened and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, <clears throat> let's, um, let's sing our final hymn. Thank you.
Dr. Smith. God bless.